Movie producer John Pinati is best known for his work on the 2018 smash hit Crazy Rich Asian. But what you may not know is his producing work in Asia and other territories around the world. Now he's here to talk about his innovative strategy that's about as unlikely a breakthrough as Crazy Rich Asians itself. Thanks for coming in, John. Hello, Andrew. Really glad to be here. Glad to have you. You are no stranger to the movie business. Your name has been attached to a lot of great indie films, from In the Bedroom to Prairie Home Companion. But then your career took a big turn. So walk us through the before and after, and eventually we'll get to Crazy Rich Asians. Terrific. I began actually as a assistant director for Sidney Lumet uh, in the late 90s. Um, he was uh, benevolent enough to take me on as a uh, uh, a wayward medical student who decided that wasn't going to really work out for me. And he uh, allowed me to train alongside he and a very tight-knit group of filmmakers, crew, etc., who basically made a career just working on Sidney Lumet movies. And I was fortunate enough to join that family and trained in physical production and under his uh close tutelage. When I started working with Sidney, I just loved the process. I loved how he, he thought about making movies. I loved how he prepared. And that led to creating a company in New York City uh, that focused on the um, um, breaking down budgeting, scheduling, and uh, helping to make sense out of what was on the page and executing uh, on screen. That company uh, was called Concrete Productions. Soon after, I uh, started a company called Green Street Films in uh, the mid-90s. We worked outside the studio system. All of the financing for our films came from uh, independent uh, equity participants. We we worked a lot with Wall Street uh, investors. Uh, and we just, maybe out of necessity and lack of experience, we didn't really look toward the studio system for our financing. Uh, and that was kind of a wonderful way to control what we wanted to make. And uh, starting with... Uh, uh, Lisa Picard is famous and the Chateau and uh, several other movies uh, uh, in the late 90s. And then including In the Bedroom, uh, which was in 2001, I believe. Uh, we just were kind of eclectic. If something interests us, then we could figure out a financing plan. We made it. And, and the independent film at that time, that circle, was it a, a good business to be in? It was a terrific business to be in because at the time there were buyers and there were several buyers. Uh, Miramax was leading the pack for sure, uh, but along with Miramax you had Fine Line and Warner's Independent and um, um, Think Films and other terrific outlets who were looking for independent films and finding a strategy to release those films. And for several years, including some of our crossover stuff like Uptown Girls and Swim Fan, I mean, really, we would just make whatever interests us. We And we'd figure out almost as an afterthought how we would distribute it. And for the most part, we got very lucky with that. That sounds so different than what the film business is today. You hit it on the head, Andrew. That is That was a... Uh, not just a different time, but it was a different way to think about um, equity risk in films. Uh, for us, we always felt there was a way to work it out. So if you were 
fortunate enough to attract multiple buyers. You had an auction and it still exists now for sure, but you were able to sell it. If for some reason a film fell short of attracting a theatrical, there were still ways uh, to um, uh, mitigate your risk, whether it was international sales, whether it was a non-theatrical release here. And remember, at this point, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, all the streamers were not part of our consciousness or anyone's consciousness. Uh, but the DVD business is still robust, and people looked at ancillary as uh, if we had enough elements, maybe there was a way to work our way out of um, a, a less-than-optimal theatrical film. Um, and that was great and helped balance our business to the, probably the mid-2000s when, uh, it doesn't seem like too long ago, but I guess it was, these terrific independent distribution entities were disappearing, like before our eyes. Warner's went out, of, Warner's Independent went out of business, Think went out of business, uh, Miramax was in a transition between um, that label and the Weinstein Company, um, Fine Line, I believe, no longer existed right at that time, and, and I'm sure I'm missing others. Uh, but we just got caught. We got caught with several several millions of dollars of investment in a slate of films and uh, really no one to sell them to. You know, I'm wow. exaggerating, but it was pretty close to that. Um, so if you miss the mark on some of these, the... Uh, the downside could have been catastrophic. Um, so that was a tough time. And we kind of had to look inside ourselves and say, okay, how do we work our way out of this? Uh, it required cutting back um, uh, on the size of the company, the uh, incremental investments we were going to take after that. And we really just focused on the films we had in production and how to work our way out of them. Um, could a domestically facing business as you were running back then continue to survive more or was it about finding a completely different model? Uh, it wasn't going to survive for us. Uh, maybe there were other companies who had a different strategies, but for us, we were so um, um, dependent on our upside coming from a domestic sale uh, that for us, the model fell apart. And uh, for me, that was a... Um, uh, an aha moment where I said, wow, I never want to be in a position again where external forces could so radically upset the course of our business. Um, so I did what I, I, maybe anybody else would do. I looked to greener pastures, and to me, Asia represented that. Um, well, been, I should say, I don't think the average producer would have necessarily looked to Asia because that is a completely different world as the film business goes. Um, maybe. I guess from my point of view, living in New York City, um, having uh, my closest of friends not in the film business but in finance and law and international commerce, it kind of seemed logical at that point. Not necessarily from the place of, well, what's happening in the film business there, but the place of what's happening in trade there, what's happening in commerce. And um, and also I had always had an inclination toward, you know, great Asian films that I would never thought I'd be making, but I would enjoy. And quite frankly, what did I have to lose? You know, at that point, I didn't believe in the model anymore. 
the money was still there, quite frankly. We had done well enough that there were still investors, but I couldn't take investors' money for a model I no longer believed in. So what did you see exactly in Asia that spoke to you as opportunity? So um, I landed in Beijing on kind of a fact-finding mission that included in that first ship um, a visit to Hong Kong and a visit to Seoul. And the first thing I saw or the first thing I was introduced to was in 2010, 2011, was the idea that the government was going to support a growing film industry, and it was yet to materialize, meaning there's obviously a handful of incredible Chinese directors, but it had not yet taken a turn into, no, 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 we're going to make this work. And what I saw, and funny, the first set of meetings I had were not really creative. They were about construction and how many theaters were being built. And so as a Westerner in the, from the movie business entering into these meetings, the questions weren't about, hey, do you have material? Do you know directors? How do you make movies? It was about uh, anyone you could introduce us to who could help advise on the building of theaters. And if you recall around this time, and I, I don't know the exact date, but AMC had been purchased and there was a, a lot of attention given to um, – how do we use the expertise of Western ex exhibition companies to help build here? Maybe I wasn't involved at that level, but the next level down, every real estate developer wanted to understand how they could build theaters. And that kind of clicked in my head and said, wow, something's going on here. Someone clearly is getting a signal from the Chinese government, from Chinese financiers, that we need to invest in infrastructure. So that that actually started the path. It wasn't an aha moment of there's five great directors I want to work with in China. It was about this is coming and we're not going to stop it. And it's going to be something um, we're going – we from the West, both from a finance and production point of view, are going to have to take notice of. I know it's an often quoted um, – statistic, and I haven't checked recently, but for many years, 20, 22 theater, 20 to 22 screens per day were coming online in China. Wow. Um, and that includes Saturday and Sundays, as I always like to say. Um, and I'm not even sure what the, the penetration is now, but absolutely there's more to go um, where, you know, I would arrive in a second tier city. So travel from Beijing to um, Qingdao and, um, and someone would say, yes, yeah, touristic city. They have 10 million people in it. That's a second tier city. And there's eight theaters. And it's just mind boggling to me. And not that that existed, but that the amount of growth possible was still ahead of us. Um, so these theaters needed content. What was your first moves? So the first thing we did was um, a, the, a, a gentleman I met there, an American uh, who had been living in Asia for 30 years, a gentleman named Robert Friedland, who's been in disparate businesses, uh, mining and resources. He was the original investor in Sirius Satellite Radio, believe mm -hmm. it or not. Um, he had some inkling toward... Uh, um, entertainment, but more he had the connections within China. Uh, and he introduced me to um, several companies, one called Pali, uh, which was a formerly a state-owned uh, company that 
um, uh, had holdings in auction houses, had uh, uh, film technology, uh, and also distribution. At one point, they had been um, uh, uh, Palibona was an entity uh, that was a, um, um, a connection between Pali, the company I mentioned, and Bona, which um, eventually spun off to be a terrific distributor today in China. Um, but at this point, they had spun off. We made a deal with Pali to uh, cooperate, to develop projects together. And that was the first step into formalizing relationships in China. Um, and that what ended up, while we did, while no films came out of it, a lot of understanding of the structure, and particularly in China, became more clear to us. Who were the people making the decisions? How was the government truly supporting the um, uh, ascension of the Chinese film market? just key and something we would have never been able to uh, take advantage of without this particular investor and now my partner, Robert Friedland, um, uh, helping. Um, that was the first. Uh, we realized quickly, or I realized quickly, that in order to get to some momentum here, because remember, we didn't have a slate of films. We didn't have a pipeline of films that would work in Asia, wh whether it be in English that are we're telling Asian stories or local language, Mandarin films. So um, we decided to do a deal with Fox International Productions, which um, at the time was a terrific organization within Fox that uh, were really early uh, adopters of this idea of producing local content for uh, the indigenous markets. And we made a deal with them. They, uh, we agreed to co-finance films in China, India, Japan, Korea, and Taiwan. Uh, for us, it was a transformative deal. So all of a sudden, with as that deal uh, came online, we had access now to Fox's terrific uh, production slate and their development pipeline. We looked into countries that would interest us. China for sure worked. Korea is a country that we started with Fox there. I'm sorry, we, we started our work in Korea via our deal with Fox. Um, ended up having some terrific successes there with uh, director Nahan Jin's film, the Whaling, or locally known as Guksong. Um, and that helped us as a company establish our own relationships on the ground. We um, duplicated that effort in India, um, in China for sure, again under the auspices of our co-financing, co-production deal with Fox International Productions. Um, so when Fox, when FIP um, took a detour and started to, um, uh, for whatever the um, uh, internal inclinations in Fox happened, we were there to continue the efforts. And by this point, we had our own relationships. We could go directly to the distributors. Um, we could go directly to the filmmakers. And uh, that moment uh, is when really my eyes opened. I said, wait a second, we could do this on our own. We could be a mini international local language studio as long as we were willing to get on flights and deal with translations and all of that extra step you need. Um, and it's just been a wonderful 
business and intellectual and social experience. But it's no small feat because companies bigger than yours have sort of knocked on international doors and felt discouraged. They've tried and failed. What were you doing that was succeeding? You couldn't use the word precedent. So if you thought in precedent, you were dead. So when we, when we go into a market, even now we're shooting in Mexico, we're in, in we're making a movie in Indonesia as we speak. How many countries total are you in? So we're in seven. Okay. Um, not shooting at any one time, but there's uh, seven countries that uh, at least now we have resources and material that we own. Uh, that's going to grow in 2019. We're going to expand in Latin America, which we see is fertile for us. Um, but this is I, the idea that you can't walk into a, a new market, and especially ones who you know, for sure have their own filmmaking apparatus. What do we offer? And one thing we offer is flexibility. So not only do we finance and not only do we bring our Western system of development and production and post-production, but we have to bring flexibility in deal making. And the companies you're referencing or you, you may be alluding to are usually older companies who are built on precedent, um, who may not value the small wins that uh, we look very positively on because we're doing this for the long run just can't move quickly enough. There's the legal contractual challenges. There's the talent relationship challenges. Um, we just, and I, I know it sounds uh, um, um, self-serving, but we really go into every negotiation like, you want to do it differently here? Great. We know We know the bottom line of what we need to be covered, but we don't really get held up by any institutional drag on our side to stop the pro the production train. So here you are, you know, making significant headway in all sorts of countries, and yet 2018 came around and it turned out instead of uh, these, you know, local films in the local language that you were specializing in, mm -hmm. Crazy Rich Asians, a, a movie for the American market primarily – uh, blows up and explodes. How did you get there, especially considering that really wasn't the focus? Not at all. Although early in 2014 or the end of 2013, as we were formalizing Ivano Pictures, which eventually has been morphed into SK Global, we could talk about that uh, in a bit, um, we didn't have any content. So we found ourselves as a fully financed uh, company working out of New York at that time, building the relationships I mentioned through our Foxdale and just legwork. And we hadn't yet really understood or we hadn't yet gotten to the place where we could make decisions for a local market that requires being there, requires, quite frankly, we may never truly understand what a Thai audience would want, um, so we need our Thai partners to help us with that. When Crazy Rich Asians came along, there was um, uh, a comfort zone. And for us, and I guess, I guess we didn't realize it at the time, but for us, we had already been attuned, and I personally had been attuned to... Um, being in Asia, being in Singapore, I, at that point I was spending six months a year there uh, in and around Greater Asia. Um, so when when I found this book, 
it just seemed familiar to me. And it was just the opposite of what one would say. It was like, oh, that's that's something that happens in Asia. And it, to me, it just it felt like more of the decisions I was making at Green Street Films where, wow, this is a personal story. This is a personal journey. But look, there's a context for it on a, a more broad scope. And for us, it fit in this general mandate we were, that we were looking toward Asia. It was as simple as that. And I think the second thing is, there wasn't financial competition for it at that point. So it it didn't fit in as a studio film, just as, as a as in the galley form or as, as Kevin Quams, the author of Crazy Rich Asians book, now has become. At that point, it was just a good story that happened to be focused in Asia. Um, so I don't know that we really thought that hard about it. Hmm. We just said, well, we need stuff that uh, works toward Asia. And by the way, this is a film probably needs, we could offer something because it still needs a Western point of view to build it. We were super, super lucky to uh, read it, get excited about it, just as Kevin Kwan was meeting Hollywood producers. Um, he had agreed to work with Nina Jacobson and Brad Simpson from Color Force, and uh, who um, really this is their sweet spot, taking adaptation, taking books and leading them through their adaptation. They did it well on Hunger Games and Diary of a Wimpy Kid and now many other uh, projects. So for me, we just got lucky. You know, I expressed interest in financing the uh, the film. Um, the Kevin's agent at the time. So, well, that's great. We have two Uber producers here who want to guide the development. And it kind of was one of the simplest deals I've ever made because nobody was even looking at it, at least from the world I live in. We're, we're not a Hollywood company. We're in, at this point, we're operating on in West Broadway and uh, Soho in New York City. So for us, we just saw some material clearly great producers who are already attached. And um, we and it fell under this kind of broad construct of, well, Ivanhoe Pictures is doing is looking to do work in Asia. They'll be fine with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was nothing more magical than that. Well, you mentioned Ivanhoe Pictures, SK Global. I think you need to sort of walk through the, the holy trinity of John Panati's film sure. brands here. Sure. It's, it's, it's complicated. Sure, it's complicated. That's exactly what it is. Um, so uh, I mentioned Green Street Films. That's a film company that I ran um, out of New York City with Fisher Stevens for several years. We started in 1998. And in fact, our backer at the time was a gentleman named Sidney Kimmel, um, we, in the early 2000s, Fisher and I continued running Green Street, but at this point, a new financier had come in. Sydney was moving his operation to L.A. He was uh, leaving his day job as the chairman of uh, uh, Jones New York and Jones Apparel, a big uh, fashion uh, brand that he built. Um, so he went on to start Sydney Kimmel Entertainment in L.A. We stuck in New York building Green Street Films up. Cut to 2013, um, I made a deal with Robert Friedland, sold the Green Street Films asset. At this point, we had about 30 films in the library. Um, we sold Robert the Robert Friedland, who, again, uh, is lives in Asia. We sold him the company. 
under the condition that together we started a company called Ivanhoe Pictures that was decidedly Asia-facing for all the reasons we talked about. Robert was intent on us looking east, and I agree to that. Uh, so that actually started Ivanhoe Pictures. So Ivanhoe Pictures ran for three or four years. I eventually moved to Los Angeles. Um, I hooked back up with my dear friend Sidney Kimmel, he asked me to come on and oversee Sydney Kimmel Entertainment, which I did. For a period of time, I was running both companies uh, and kind of made sense because there were two different time zones. And as long as I was willing to work around the clock, it worked. Hmm. Um, eventually, Robert and Sydney got to know each other. I suggested we should merge the companies. Uh, we did. Uh, the resulting company of Ivanhoe Pictures and Sydney Kimball Entertainment is a company called SK Global. That is the parent company. Uh, we remain, we, we kept the Ivanhoe Pictures label and the Sydney Kimball Entertainment label alive. And depending on what content we're shooting, if it's a local language picture in Indonesia, more likely that's going to be under the Ivanhoe Pictures brand. If it's something like Greta, the Neil Jordan film that's coming out this year, or Hell or High Water, or other more traditional Sydney Kimmel entertainment films, they fall under that banner. Well, so on the Sydney Kimmel side, would that be uh, Greta is one production that's mm -hmm. coming out soon. You also have a show coming to Netflix, uh, mm -hmm. Delhi Crime, that mm -hmm. that would come from Ivanhoe. Ivanhoe, yeah. and it's going to be on Netflix India, but also available to all Netflix. Worldwide, yeah. So that's a direct um, outgrowth of our comfort zone and working in local language. Um, Richie Mehta uh, wrote and directed eight episodes of a true crime story called Delhi Crime. Uh, we partnered with uh, Golden Caravan, who is a Mumbai and L.A.-based production finance company run by a great uh, group of executives. We, uh, we all agreed to just jump in and finance and produce those eight episodes. Uh, we were fortunate enough to bring them to Sundance uh, a few weeks ago where we made a deal with Netflix. Netflix now will put all eight completed episodes on the service on uh, March 22nd of this year. And they've also agreed to a second season that will uh, be released uh, in 2020. So it's sort of an interesting new phase for you. And first of all, you're branching out into television and not just film. Mm -hmm. But also you're dealing now with a different group of buyers in Netflix and the others. Mm -hmm. What is that like for you? It's a great outgrowth of why I believe Ivanhoe Pictures was well positioned to start in 2013. Because at this point, now there was a model uh, coming becoming clear again, at least on the Ivanhoe Pictures side, where... If we could find good local content, maybe now there was a global opportunity. So when we go into any of the countries we work in, we are absolutely understanding the local market, know that the vast vast majority of our revenues will be made in that, uh, um, uh, that particular country. However, we're just internationalized in how we see the world and how we see content. So one of our opportunities and advantages in the local market is convincing directors that we are actually looking outwards for their their content. We'll take it to Cannes, as we did with The Whaling, or we'll help have it distributed in Western Europe, which we have on several of our local language films. That happened to dovetail perfectly with 
the uh, streamer's appetite to own worldwide rights and take that um, um, uh, what, what would once seem like a um, uh, a very indigenous title in Thailand and now find an audience elsewhere. Uh, thankfully, it fits how we think about content, how we the local to global. Um, aspect of content making drives us as filmmakers, and now we have an access point for that. Uh, so, in some ways, the Delhi crime, the the television show, really has its roots in um, our hope that interesting stories told as locally as possible could have a global um, um, uh, context. And Delhi Crime clearly uh, demonstrates that. And I think that's kind of drives us. And if the, and, and right there, that's a business model where we could say, you know what, if we could continue to grow revenues outside of the local market, and thoughtfully develop the right content that can make that move, we feel good about that. And I think you're going to see more and more um, um, uh, examples of that for sure from us. But I also think from other investors and filmmakers who 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 see the world um, uh, uh, outside of just the uh, nationalistic boundaries. Hmm. Maybe a lesson for even beyond the film industry. <laughs> I'm sure. But, but one last question, one that yeah. kind of brings it full circle to something you said earlier about having the kind of business that's not dependent on external forces. Mm-hmm. But in this land of Netflix, Amazon, and other big giants mm-hmm. that are presumably bigger than anything you've dealt with in your career, mm-hmm. are you not still somewhat dependent on external forces? Um so we try to, in the local markets, we try to um, uh, measure our risk very, very rarely. And there are exceptions like Delhi Crime, but very rarely will we do a local film without a local distribution partner to start with. So because you do, we, we can't possibly understand all the machinations of an audience's um, uh, appetite in each of these countries, we very much rely on our local partner and our local distribution partner to help us with that. Um, as what you said is very important. You will never, this is just not the business if you want full coverage and you're not willing to take risk. You should not be in this business. It's just not, it's not attuned to that. We're, we are um, um, constitutionally um, uh, okay with a certain amount of risk. So, and we just hope we stay slightly ahead of the market and slightly ahead of the buyers to know we could deliver something to them. What it will look like three years from now, you're absolutely right. It may be a wholly different context. You know, we may be um, uh, making content for streaming or uh, platforms that we don't even, we can't even understand yet that have some type of telco um, opportunity. Uh, just, it's just unclear. But really, what's, I think, has been fun and has helped us is we try to stay a little bit ahead of this by being on the ground because we think the growth is in these international markets for us at least it is and as long as we're there you know we're now doing a lot of work in Vietnam so but it's 2 years in the making we haven't even come close to our first film but that's okay it took us 3 years to agree to do something in Indonesia and now our first film is starting March 5th so 
we're patient in that regard, and I think we have to be, uh, because while the world moves very fast, it still takes time to get to the place where you're, comfort, you're comfortable with the risk profile. I wonder whether you are due for something that could be like the reverse of a crazy rich Asians, where mm-hmm. instead of taking, say, what might be viewed as a primarily Asian story and selling it to an American audience, you take a say, with Delhi Crime, a native Indian story mm-hmm. that actually sort of plays well in the rest of the world. Yeah. Do you think there's that increased appetite I, for global material? I, I 100% think that's happening. I think you have, you know, often uh, referenced um, um, uh, examples like Narcos, which Netflix did a wonderful job of internationalizing. Uh, so it's happening already. I think you're God willing, we're going to do it enough so that uh, one of our productions just hits that sweet spot with with uh, getting audiences' minds open to an experience that they would normally never get. And I'd like to do that, quite frankly, on the theatrical side. You know, I, I love streaming. It's a big part of our business. But at the core, I still love going to a theater. So I'm hoping we could find a context for a film that does uh, does do exactly what you're saying, does catch people to catch Western audiences' imagination for a story that um, uh, might originate uh, in Asia, for instance, that's a dream. Well, John, I wish you luck uh, in your pursuit of that success. We'll be watching. Thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate it. This has been another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week for another helping of scintillating conversation with media movers and shakers. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes. Also, leave a review in Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing.